So I had my own Elijah moment not that long ago. It was one of those days in the last couple of weeks where it nearly hit 100 degrees, you know, where it was threatening to after weeks of kind of hovering right around there. And my house does not have any air conditioning because, you know, nobody needs it in this town, right? So the cat was mad at me because it was hot. I was mad at James because it was hot. I was in the backyard struggling with the sprinkler. I was hot, I was wet, I was angry, and I bruised my shin, and I cut my hand. On the way back into the house, I stubbed my toe. And so I said something not very nice. Um, now the <laughs> Yes, Lord? <laughs> well, I was having a little bit of a moment. James came rushing out of the house. He said, are you okay? I said, I'm fine. I've stubbed my toe, but I was feeling kind of cranky. And he rolled his eyes. He said, you're such a drama queen. And he went back inside. That was the wrong thing to say. Um, I, was, I was livid. I was so angry. I was so upset. And I should have just thrown myself to the ground like Elijah does in First Kings. I should have found my broom tree and said, it is enough. It is enough, O oh Lord, take away my life. I am no better than my ancestors. I mean, Paul says in Ephesians, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And so we think that we're supposed to be nice all the time, that we're supposed to be these, you know, beautiful, pious, gentle people who have put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and all of that sort of stuff. But when we, we look at Hebrew scripture and we see that every one of these guys is just as cantankerous and angry and upset as we are. I mean, if, if, if there's a cantankerous Olympics in the Bible, my money is on the prophet Elijah, right? It's the guy that you see depicted on the cover of your bulletin this morning. He's sitting there all mopey and depressed while this raven from heaven tries vainly to cheer him up with a little bit of bread. I mean, all of these, these animals are buzzing solicitously around Elijah like he's Snow White or St. Francis. And even then, the guy cannot be bothered, right? He maintains his dour demeanor right up until the very end. He's known in tradition as Elijah the Tishbite. He's an 8th century prophet who lived during the reign of wicked King Ahab and wicked Queen Jezebel. Elijah the Tishbite, he's usually assumed to have come from somewhere called Tishba. Nobody knows where Tishba is. So a different way of translating that epithet that he's got is to call him Elijah the Sojourner. Elijah the, Elijah the Traveler, perhaps. Elijah the Immigrant or the Refugee. Elijah is a guy who, kind of like Blanche Dubois in A Streetcar Named Desire, right? He has always depended upon the kindness of strangers. The story of Elijah is a story of a guy who has nowhere permanent to rest his head, a guy who travels from place to place in a kind of radical dependence on God to take care of his bodily needs. The ravens feed him roadkill in one, in one story. The, the widow of Zarephath makes him cakes out of a little bit of flour and oil that she's got. He joins up with the prophet Obadiah for a little while. Finally, Elijah is left all alone in the middle of the wilderness where we find him in this morning's story. He's underneath the broom tree and he is ready to die. It is enough, O Lord, it is enough. Take away my life. I am no better than my ancestors. So this time, the angels sweep down from heaven to take care of him. When I heard this, this story in Sunday school, I imagined that, you know, what the angels were bringing Elijah was a proper cake, right? A, a gooey, lemony thing dripping with glaze and frosting. More likely, this is sort of the angelic version of pita bread, which Bedouin tribes still cook on hot stones in the desert to this day. Elijah gorges himself on the heavenly banquet 
And then he promptly goes back to sleep, ready once again to die. He is resisting, he's cantankerous, he's stubborn to the end, and he's only one day into this journey that God is calling him on. There's another 40 days journey on foot to get Elijah to the place God needs him to go. That's Mount Horeb. That's a desert, that's a mountain in the desert that was at one time kind of ground zero for his people 500 years earlier. Elijah is making kind of the reverse pilgrimage that the children of Israel made in Exodus. He's going out of the land, flowing with milk and honey and gooey lemony desserts, and he's going back out into a place of waiting and wandering, a place of uncertainty and anxiety and fear, a place where his people once learned a kind of radical dependence on the God who called them out of Egypt. And maybe Elijah needs to learn that lesson too. The Tishbite, right? The sojourner, the refugee. Maybe he's grown a little bit too comfy. He's had a lot of very public success. This guy, there was a, a holy bake-off with the prophets of Baal. Elijah's God showed up with the requisite magic. The prophets of Baal are slaughtered because that's how they did it. And he's managed to, you know, piss off all the right people, which is what you do when you're a prophet. Elijah's life is like a, you know, it's, a, it's going really well as far as ancient prophets go. And now he's being called back into the desert. And all he gets to sustain him for 40 days is this little round cake, this little pita bread baked by angels. Take and eat, they say. Take and eat, lest the journey be too much for you, for this is the bread of life. The church calls this story about Elijah and the cakes and the water a kind of a prefiguring of the Eucharistic banquet, Holy Communion, whatever you, whatever you want to call this funny little ritual that we do every week with bread and wine. The bread of life. That's what Jesus calls himself in John's Gospel. And we say that you get a little foretaste of that, a little reality check, a little smidgen of that living presence of Christ himself in the ritual of this little cracker and bread and this little sip of wine. It's a, it's a pretty simple meal when you get right down to it. I mean, we, we dress it up with fancy silver and jewels. But what we're here to do is actually a pretty simple thing. The bread of life, it turns out, is actually kind of a meager thing. There's not a lot of it. It's certainly not the the thick, gooey, lemony vision I once imagined it to be. The bread of life is a hard thing. It's travel food. It's vittles. It's, it's rations. It's the viaticum, right? That's the, that's the fancy name for the Latin bread and wine that is given to a person on their deathbed. Let's try this light. There we go. In the Roman Catholic tradition, the, the last Eucharist that you ever receive is called viaticum. The priest brings it to you on your deathbed. Viaticum just means food for the way, food for the journey, food for your final journey in that case, you know, your, your last march through the wilderness and back to that original mountain, the mountain of God, the mountain of the desert, the mountain of death and new life, the mountain in, on, on which you are, are stripped of everything you knew and you have to learn once again how to rely completely and utterly on God. Jesus taught his disciples this, right? Jesus taught his disciples to say, give us this day our daily bread. But most of us, I, I dare say, in the course of our day-to-day -day existence, forget the anxiety that once we knew related to daily sustenance. Our, our daily bread comes to us as easily as we have money to buy it. 
scones and sweet rolls and pancakes and biscuits and, you know, after a while, maybe we lose our taste for the simplicity of the wafer, the, the hard cake baked on stones in the desert. I mean, what's, what's one little cardboardy crumb? What's, what's a meager sip of wine when I can go up the street to Ken's and gorge myself on chocolate croissants and fresh roasted coffee? I mean, forget the bread of life, I'll take a cinnamon roll, thank you very much. But God's way is not to tantalize us with sweetmeats and delectables. God is, God is actually not the wicked witch in Hansel and Gretel building a house out of sugar to tempt us to following the way and then slamming the oven door on us in the last moment. I mean, there's, there's nothing sweet to tempt you here. God's way is a harder way, a less sugary, but I think a more honest way, a way that's predicated on getting just a taste of what you need, just enough to kind of keep you going for the next couple steps, deliberately not supplying you with an endless, you know, supply of leftovers that you can pack away into your Tupperware and store up for the winter. God gives you as much as you need right now, here, in this moment. And, and it's not even really enough to sate your hunger and slake your thirst. I mean, the, the Eucharist is, is kind of more of an amuse-bouche than it is anything else. It's, it's something to get your spiritual taste buds activated and to awaken a kind of longing in you for something more. As the deer pants after the water brooks, the psalmist says, as the deer longs for the running streams, so longs my soul after you, O God. My soul is a thirst for God, a thirst for the living God. When shall I come? to appear before the presence of God. That's what the bread of life is for. It makes you hungry for more of it, more Jesus. The idea of, of coming to this altar and, and putting out your hands and receiving this little wafer of bread, this little sip of wine, the idea is actually not that you will walk away satisfied. The idea is that it will leave you wanting more. The old, the old tradition is that you're not supposed to come to this rail unless you're spiritually ready. The old tradition is that you're supposed to be in a, in a state of worthiness, a, a state of grace, if you like, when you receive bread and wine at the altar. Maybe you got that, you know, pummeled into you at some point as a kid. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, right? Ephesians talks about that. You're not supposed to take Eucharist if you're mad. And there's spiritual wisdom there, right, to be sure. What I think is more interesting are these, are these stories, like the story of Elijah, where the gifts of God in bread and wine come to one who is angry and frustrated and depressed and certainly not in a state of grace. And partaking of the meal does not help Elijah, right? He is just as angry at the end of the story as he was at the beginning of it. I told a, a spiritual director of mine once that I thought that I was too angry to receive communion. And she was a good and pious Lutheran woman, and I thought that she would affirm me in that, right? She said, oh yes, you're exactly right, and you, know, you need to spend some time meditating on your sinfulness and get into a state of grace before you go to receive Eucharist. But instead she said, Nathan, have you considered that it might actually be a situation like this? It might actually be for when you're mad that God needs you to take Eucharist the most. And I said, that's crazy, that's, that's ridiculous. We had this kind of argument back and forth, like, no, 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 I'm not in a good place to do it. And I've, I've, you know, I could see her getting more and more frustrated. And finally, she just sort of slammed the book closed, and she said, oh, for heaven's sake, Nathan, just eat the damn thing. <laughs> you don't have to know why. You don't have to be in a state of grace. Just eat it, for heaven's sake. 
And I think, there's, I think there's some truth in that. I mean, you know, people have died over what they think is happening up here at Eucharist. Lives of people have been driven to the slaughter. Much ink has been spilled over this question of what the church thinks is going on when the priest mutters words over bread and wine, and then we take it and feed it to you. Is it Jesus? Is it symbolic? Is it a memorial meal? Whatever. I mean, the point is to eat it, right? Get up and eat, is what the angels say to Elijah. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Unless you, unless you taste of me, unless you eat my flesh, unless you chow down on my meat. I mean, that's a, that's a more literal rendering of what he says. Jesus is being deliberately provocative here. There are some, I mean, I think, frankly, uncomfortable sexual overtones in the original Greek version of this text. Our English translators are very politely sanitizing all of that for you. But Jesus' original words in John's gospel effectively scandalized the people to whom he spoke. I mean, what happens immediately after the story in John is that, like, most of them take to the hills, right? This, this stuff is way too weird for us, man. Only a few of them are left, and Jesus turns to them, the faithful remnant of those who lasted through his weird cannibalistic meditation on eating body and chewing flesh. He says, you know, don't you all want to go away too? And, and Peter turns to him and says, Lord, where, where do we go? To whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And they're weird words. They make us uncomfortable. They make us titter a little bit. We don't really understand what it is you're talking about. There is something about this stuff that is just weird enough to keep us interested long enough to start figuring out what the heck you're talking about. I mean, where else do we go? There's a, there's a gazillion places to get a sugary breakfast meal in this town. But like the deer panting for the water brook, what, what Peter's soul longs for, what, what Elijah's soul longs for, what I think each one of us longs for when we get real honest with ourselves, it's something that's less sugary, but a whole lot more sweet. We long to see Jesus face to face. We long for the true bread which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. We long to taste of death itself and know that it's not the end but a, a foretaste of something to come. In a weird way, at some level, I think, we, we want to be called back into the desert just like Elijah was so many years ago. I don't, I don't know what your, what your desert march looks like, what particular rocks and stones you're going to have to scramble over to get to the mountain of God, what, what kind of radical dependence on God you're going to have to learn the hard way in order to reach the summit of the place where your ancestors have been, the, the place to which each one of us will someday be called. What I know is that each of us, at some point in our lives, are called to go there to make our desert sojourn away from the creature comforts of an easy existence of bakeries and coffee shops and into a harder place where all we get are a few flimsy cakes of bread, a vial of wine, viaticum, right? Food for the journey, just enough to prop us up and keep us going a few more steps. We are meant to live hungry lives. And if we forget what that real hunger feels like, the bread of life is given to us as a wake-up call. Right? This is meant to be a reminder, a reminder not to settle for sugar, 
right? Don't settle for some lesser, more fun and enticing meal. It's not going to do the job. It's not going to get you where you need to go. The God who created you made you for more than a sugary breakfast. The bread of life is here and it works. And the point is not to understand it. The point is to eat it. Take and eat. Get up and eat. Because the road is a long one. And the journey is sometimes pretty tricky. So take and eat. Lest the journey be too hard for you. That is the bread of life.